glad I can uh, help out over the next few weeks. And after prayer, I decided to do a series of, of three on the topic of sacrifice. I know that'll excite everybody. <laughs> well, more on that. Let, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that it pleased you in your complete wisdom to set forth your Son as a sacrifice not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, this is a matter uh, of majesty beyond our comprehension. But we're trusting today that your Holy Spirit would give us insight into such wonderful things. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there was an ad on TV the other day, and it went like this. There was more than what I'm going to say. Uh, but the lady for a certain diet regime said, it works because there's no sacrifice. It works because there's no sacrifice. So she sort of summed up our culture's view of suffering. And it's this view which has basically invaded the church. The subject of sacrifice is tremendously important and very difficult. Whilst we have a habit sometimes of uh, elevating others who sacrifice for us, and we naturally are aversive. We don't like the idea of counting the cost. In an increasingly narcissistic and selfie-oriented society, the church is called to bring a revelation of the power of godly sacrifice to heal hearts which have been turned in on themselves. The people of God need to embrace loss as the key to a holiness that brings God's presence and creates a home for the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Only the gospel, not an idea of the gospel, but the power of the gospel, only the gospel can convince the selfish, introverted human heart I'm talking about us all. Only the gospel can convince us that God's own nature is to sacrifice. And this will require a radical change of perspective. The reading today from uh, 1 Peter, our last reading, said of Jesus that he's a lamb without spot or blemish, foreknown, and that's the better translation, I know using the NIV, foreknown, <laughs> foreknown foreknown before the foundation of the world. You get that? Before the foundation of the world. Christ's eternal destiny as a sacrifice is likewise proclaimed in Revelation, where there's a testimony in 13.8 of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Or from a slightly different angle in Paul, in 2 Timothy 1.9, that's a wonderful scripture, this saving grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now to think like God, which we can in the spirit, we have to think outside of these normal limitations. At the centre of the Father's eternal design for the universe was the sacrifice of his Son. God was forever carrying deep inside himself a willingness to lose that we might gain. This is what some people call the wonderful exchange. It's in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for example. You know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, 
that through his poverty you might become rich. The unsurpassable wisdom of the cross is as eternal as God himself. A wisdom beyond human imagination that the Lord's plan to maximise his self-giving to us meant the sacrifice of himself in death. The unsurpassable genius, I can't find a better word, the unsurpassable genius of the plan of God is that his own willingness to sacrifice is how he'll manage to pour out his life into our lives. The whole of creation and all of life must be viewed through the lens of the sacrifice of the cross. In his introduction, the writer of the Hebrews places Jesus at the very centre of everything when he says, in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word which brought you into existence and which sustains your existence moment by moment is the sacrificed word carrying all things forward to their ordained destiny. There is no randomness in this universe. Once we know in our hearts how profound and unlimited in power is the sacrifice of Christ, we will be fully assured that nothing can frustrate the plan of God not only for this world, but for each of our lives. Now, Paul possessed this certainty, because this is what he says in the beginning of, uh, well, Romans 8.32, this one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us, what, some things? No, all things. If the really hard thing for God has been accomplished in the sacrifice of his son, it is inconceivable that his purposes for those in Christ could fail. Now this is what he says in Philippians. He says, I am certain that God, certain that God who began a good work within you will continue this work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Not all who start the journey of faith finish well. But all those who keep growing in the sense of God's destiny for their lives and do finish well have embraced that the cost in following Jesus is something to be treasured. That it's a privilege to bear the cost of following Jesus. Sacrifice is part of an identity on the way to glory. So this is what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the whole book of Revelation upholds the prevailing power of the sacrifice of Christ to empower a struggling church to finish well. And the book of Revelation closes with a vision testifying that the, the solidness of the new creation, its imperishability, is founded on the cross because we're told that the light of the heavenly city, Jerusalem, or the lamp of that city, is the lamb, which is 
the Lamb that John has seen at the height of his ascension into heaven, standing as slaughtered, which is the standing bits, the resurrection, the slaughtered bits, the cross. The foundation on which God is building his new creation in heaven is the blood sacrifice of Christ. And to see into these things, which we can do in the spirit, to see in these things is to be possessed of an assurance that the Lord will come back and he will renew everything, everything. Now, I don't want to give a um, confused uh, understanding of sacrifice. If sacrifice as the world sees it is dominated by a sense of loss and pain, sacrifice in the Bible issues in a triumphant joy. Take, for example, our reading today from, from Numbers 28. And that reading was describing the morning and evening sacrifice, which happened in the temple every day. And it was said to be, at the beginning and end of that passage, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, something that God took pleasure in. Now, the background to these daily sacrifices is the rhythm of creation, because morning and evening mark the day in which God brought everything into being. The Lord was to be worshipped continually through these sacrifices for his creation of the universe, his providential power in caring for our needs, and it's giving to us as male and female the pinnacle position of ruling his creation. Often we really un underestimate uh, the power and depth of the Old Testament. The daily repetition of these sacrifices provided a recurring picture of God's generous sovereignty calling forth faithful human responsibility in Israel. Now this was a wonderful thing. Don't you think? Sacrifice was to be a response of gratitude for the richness of creation and covenant. It was a wonderful thing. In Scripture, God takes great delight in willing sacrifice. Now that willing is the key word. Remember what happened when Noah came out of the ark. By faith, this is what it says, he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God was satisfied. Now this is all a type or a, a prophetic image of the cross. Now this expression of, of, of a pleasing aroma to the Lord appears multiple times throughout Scripture in both Testaments. When in the law... The Israelites are commanded to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices. There's also a command, in Deuteronomy this one, to rejoice before the Lord. Now, the New Testament commands like that, like Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. Now, if Christians are not rejoicing, they're just disobedient people. Uh, and of course, I'm, you know, I can't say that about you people because I don't know you. <laughs> There's even in the Old Testament a specific Thanksgiving sacrifice. And that one's in Leviticus. It's like a party, really, before the Lord. And on the occasions when they, when they sacrificed the greatest number of animals, like when David brought the ark, 
into Jerusalem or when Solomon opened the temple, there is the most intense joy amongst the people because they experience the presence of the favour of God. All old covenant joy, which was, was real but limited, is a prophetic preliminary to the limitless delight which would come through the sacrifice, the one and only true sacrifice of the cross. Psalm 22 is the great prophecy of the death of Jesus which begins with these words which you know, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And its whole first half is filled with anguish. But its second part is exultant and triumphant because this psalm mirrors the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, exhorts us to look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Sacrifice was always about joy. But you have to go through the sacrifice first, like Jesus did. And the joy that, that came to Jesus for us in going through the cross is an indestructible joy, eternal joy. Now, it's not actually easy to understand sacrifice. People think they understand most things, but generally they don't understand anything much. The spirituality of sacrifice in Scripture is profound beyond our imaginations. When Adam and Eve foolishly disobeyed God's word in Eden, their hearts turned from being for God inwards to being for themselves. And they fell into the terrible burden of self-centeredness, which is the essence of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but when we sung that song, it was sort of like a confession song before communion, that was a great reminder of just how self-centered we are. Now, self-centeredness is the essence of sin. Now, because you know God is never self-centered. If failure to sacrifice is at the root of original sin, right, because Adam and Eve thought they were really going to, if they obeyed God, they're going to sacrifice being like God. They got deceived by Satan. So if failure to sacrifice is, is at the root of original sin, only willing sacrifice can undo the power of sin in us. The writers of the Old Testament understood that for sacrifice to give God pleasure, it had to cost us something at the level of the heart or the level of the will. Any other form of sacrifice is simply religious selfishness, which is probably the worst form of selfishness. But it's very powerful. You know, think of people blowing themselves up and stuff. The psalmist says in a passage later applied to Jesus, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering is not what you required. Then I said, this is about Jesus, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. 
I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. God was never interested in bulls and goats, but only in a heart with a desire to obey him. That's all. A heart with a desire to obey him. All the rest is irrelevant. In going to the cross, the all-loving Son of God willed to take himself into the rebellious will of a creation which had sought to unfather God. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. Creation in its rebellion had sought to unfather God, which is impossible. But Jesus would refather God for us. So his prayer is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know this prayer. Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now this is a prayer of a heart perfectly dedicated to bringing pleasure to the Father no matter what the cost. And that's what he's trying to form in each of us. A heart dedicated to the Father to bringing pleasure to the Father no matter what the cost. So this attitude of Jesus makes him the living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The completely good, acceptable and perfect spiritual worship that the Father had always desired had come. The joy that flowed to the Father through the agony of the cross is unshakable, eternal, and it is his strength to bring into birth a new creation. At the visible level, the body of Christ on the cross, I mean his physical body, was just one of thousands crucified. But at the heart level, known only to God, Jesus' motivation to bring joy to the Father by bringing to us eternal life made this like no other sacrifice. This, and only this, pure holy sacrifice created a new depth of communion between God and humanity and humanity and God. It opens up a new depth of heart understanding in the spirit and a new insight into the divine destiny for everything. There was someone years ago who wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. Well, I think that's true of everybody. But hopefully our view of God gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more we follow Jesus, particularly in making Decisions against our own selfishness. The infinite sacrifice in God the Son for God the Father has brought into being through Christ's humanity an indestructible joy that lies at the foundation of a whole new creation and whose presence can turn our inward-looking hearts inside out. Let's talk about um, Christian sacrifice. 
<laughs> That's all right. If, if, the, if someone's demanding your attention, <laughs> if, if the will of, will of Jesus set apart to his Father in sacrifice was the raw material out of which God fashioned the new life of resurrection, it must be so with us. True disciples of Jesus, that doesn't mean everybody that comes to church, true disciples of Jesus, understand that, that the logic of their lives is the logic of sacrifice. Do you know what that means? The way you think about life. The logic of your life is the logic of sacrifice because that's how Jesus lived. And that's how the apostles lived. So Paul puts it like this. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you know the rest of it? It's no longer who lives. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says elsewhere in Philippians, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Because he's into this joy thing too. And he knows the mystery. That the joy, the eternal joy, comes through willing sacrifice according to the will of God. As Jesus himself, according to Hebrews, was made perfect through what he suffered, so our communion with Christ is realised primarily by sacrifice in following him. That is, when he calls you to sacrifice, if you obey him, you get closer to him. And this will go on to the end of your life if you're following Jesus. The refusal to follow in this way of sacrifice explains the loss of the missionary spirit in contemporary Western Christianity. In preparing this sermon, I went to my filing cabinet and I was surprised at how many of the examples I had in there about sacrifice were from the lives of pioneer missionaries. So I've got a couple. David Livingston, very famous, opened up much of Africa to the gospel. He suffered from malaria, dysentery, starvation, attacks on his life. He was kidnapped, lost a wife. But once he said, and there's a longer quote, but I won't give you this all. He said, he said, it is in fact emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it's a privilege. All of these, and he lists his sufferings, and nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us, I never made a sacrifice. And then he goes on to say, of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high, to give himself for us. Well, we were talking about C.T. Studd before, Tim and I. It was a revelation of the magnitude of God's sacrifice in Christ that moved this man, uh, C.T. Studd, who found, founded WEC. It's a worldwide evangelistic uh, mission. He says, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. You know, I, I know all these Christians, they won't even get up out of bed to pray for the Lord. Oh, perhaps I shouldn't shout. That's not shouting, actually. <laughs> the, the, the greatest Protestant missionary to China, who was Hudson Taylor, though losing a wife and three children there, said in later years, 
I never made a sacrifice. Now, are these strange people? By our standards, they are. But they're not strange people. I'll tell you what's going on in their lives. These joyous, satisfied pioneers of the faith had discovered that in Christ, willing sacrifice is never a waste of a life, but brings entry into the resurrection order of the new creation where there is limitless contentment. Because you don't just make a sacrifice and that's it. You enter more fully into the resurrection life of Christ. Can you say from your heart, and if you can't, you can ask others to pray for you later, can you say from your heart with all sincerity, I have never made a sacrifice? Now, a testimony like this is extremely powerful in an increasingly discontented world. And it doesn't matter how much money comes in, that is not going to bring this sort of contentment in life. Only following Jesus in the way of sacrifice will do that. And it's wonderful. So I'm at the conclusion. What costs nothing is worth nothing. That's me. That's my quote. But Jim Elliott, who was killed in uh, South America in 1956, said before his death, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's an easy one to remember. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's a wisdom in that. It's the wisdom of Christ. And CT start again, the measure of our sacrifice is the limit of our success. The greater the loss in God's will, the greater the gain. It's true. It's absolutely true. Now these are great truths, but they must be understood and applied through the lens of the cross and not through self-effort. Now when I was a younger, a lot younger preacher, um, I remember preaching this sermon somewhere, I was in Victoria, and it was titled Total Commitment. But there was more of me and, and self-effort in it, I tell you, than being in Christ and sharing in his life. Now Paul said in Romans 8.17, listen carefully, we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. We suffer with him to be glorified with him. And when he adds, we are always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus, this is in 2 Corinthians, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, he means exactly what he says. We do not suffer simply for Jesus, we suffer with Jesus. Which means we suffer triumphantly. Suffering in this world now exists in the wisdom of God to be triumphed over by faithful obedience in love. In this sharing with Christ, we are by grace co-redeemers. We're working with God in the salvation of the world. This vision of union with the self-sacrifice of Jesus has no limits. So Benjamin Warfield, who was a famous uh, theologian about 100 years ago, put it like this. Now, the language of his time. He says, Wherever men suffer, there will we be to comfort. 
Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs, which is what Jesus did in becoming a sacrifice for us. Now, Anglican worshippers should be familiar with this prayer and we can make it our own. It goes, Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. May that be the prayer we carry in our hearts every day. Amen.